Hello and welcome. It's Friday, this is Anthony Day, and this is another episode of the Sustainable Futures Show. Today I'm going to introduce you to Gareth Kane, author of numerous books and one of the UK's leading sustainability consultants. But before that, I promised I'd tell you about my presentation to Expo Northwest last week. It was a great show, very well attended, with people coming to Burnley Football Ground from Shrewsbury in the south, Carnforth in the lakes, from Manchester of course, and even from Yorkshire. My presentation was on Sustainable Futures, Your Competitive Edge, and a very wide range of businesses signed up. I summarised climate change and spent some time on the possible risks to our energy supplies. I looked at case studies from a number of industries and gave delegates a checklist so that they could go out the next day and start making energy savings. My point about the competitive edge was that having a sustainability policy can differentiate you from the competition. At the moment. However, it won't last. More and more customers are demanding that you demonstrate your sustainability, usually by having certified standards. It'll soon be the norm. After Expo Northwest, I went to the Northwest Sustainable Business Quarterly Meeting in Manchester. One of the speakers was Lord Reedsdale, a Lib Dem peer specialising in energy. I'm going to talk about what I learned at this session in another episode, but here are some remarks worth remembering. Expect the oil price to rise by 25% in the next 12 months. Expect energy prices to double over the next five years. Look out for brownouts and blackouts next winter. The safety margin is vanishingly small. And I thought I was the pessimist. Anyway, there's no challenge that isn't worth facing up to. Let's hear how Gareth Kane faces up to the sustainability challenge. Today I'm talking to Gareth Kane, who is a sustainability expert and an author of a number of books. Gareth, welcome. What actually started you on your sustainability journey? Well, thank you, Anthony, for having me on today. It's a great pleasure. Um, the start of my story, I have to sort of rewind back uh, quite a few years now. It's, I suppose it's, all, it's coming up on 19 years. Um, I happened through a long story, which I won't go into, uh, to be teaching English in the far north of Russia, in Murmansk, 200 kilometres north of the Arctic Circle. And one day they took us for a um, a day trip and went through a town called Monshagorsk, which in the local Sami language actually means beautiful place, but it was anything but, because all around the town, all, particularly downwind of the town, was just devastation. What should have been your sort of archetypal Russian fir trees was just nothing. It was a dead zone with a few bleached stumps. And the reason why was very clear, because if you looked up, there's a huge cloud uh, emanating from chimneys on the horizon of where we stopped and that was from a nickel smelter and it was a big cloud of acid rain and I think it was two things that made me really stop and think one you know you, you really have to sometimes experience you know because I could taste the acid in my mouth and I could see nothing but destruction you sometimes have to th- be in the middle of that 
to have an emotional reaction to really make you want to change your behavior. So I decided almost there and then, or certainly mulling on that in the next couple of days, that I was going to change my career from being a, a sort of jobbing project manager in the public sector to uh, really trying to make sustainability happen and stop that, um, stop that type of destruction. The other side of it was I'm an engineer by training. And back when I did my engineering degree, there was no such thing as sort of engineering for a sustainable future or the various variations in those phrases that you see around the country today. If you wanted to do environmental engineering, it was about sewage. So, um, and environmentalists tended to be ecologists. And I, I sort of flirted with ecology for a bit, but I, I, I didn't really, it didn't grab me the way, you know, I, I think I'm culturally an engineer. I come from, you know, my father's an engineer and uh, I come from that sort of background. But standing there and seeing the ecological destruction and this sort of pathway back to a piece of engineering, which was the nickel smelter, I suddenly realised that the skills I had problem solving and engineers, what we needed, it wasn't an ecological problem. It was, at that point, I thought, definitely an engineering problem. And now I'd probably say, well, it's a bigger issue to do with the economy and, and everything else. So it was a real sort of road to Damascus moment for me. And when I came back to the UK, then I, uh, I got a job at the Engineering Design Centre in Newcastle University looking at uh, designing out ecological problems and um, on the drawing board. And then uh, I suppose my career progressed from there. Right, and that was what, 10, 15 or even more years ago, was it? Uh, 15 years ago. It was um, 98 I started at Newcastle University. So um, 17 years ago, almost to the day, I suppose. And since then, you've set up Terra Infirma, and you've been working with some of uh, of the world's largest corporations. Yes, um, it's it's quite interesting because I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, the archetypal one man band working out of a room in my family house, and um, you know, the client list that we've worked with has been is some of the biggest organisations in the world, the NHS, BBC, uh, BA Systems, Johnson Matthey PLC, News International, um, and you know quite a few others. So that in itself surely is encouraging that there are major household names who are taking sustainability seriously. Oh, I think so. Um, I, I tend to take issue when people are down, down beat and say, we're not really doing this, we're not really doing that, nobody's interested, blah, blah, blah. And only to a certain extent is that true. There's certainly a core set of organisations who are really taking this seriously. And you know, research by Harvard Business School has shown that when they compare what they defined as high sustainability companies against low sustainability companies, the high sustainability companies outperform the low sustainability companies on financial terms by about 50%, no matter what economic metric or financial metric you use. So, you know, the business case is very, very clear. And, and yet, I um, if you remember, at the time of the uh, Davos conference, the World Economic Forum back in January, PwC published its global... CEO survey and there was comment at the time that they didn't mention climate change anywhere in it because they said well our global CEOs just aren't interested yes I find that 
I, I sort of find that quite hard to believe from my own experience uh, because there are huge companies, as I say, who are taking this uh, very seriously. And the only way you can take sustainability seriously in an organisation is to have that commitment from the top. It just won't happen. Otherwise, you know, this is... Um, you know, to, excuse the plug but this is why I wrote my second book The Green Executive was because at that time in my consultancy really the, um, the the debate was moving from a sort of environmental management level up to sustainability leadership and when people were asking me to engage with the leadership I couldn't find any models out there produced by anybody else for that engagement so I I would produce my own, and that then evolved, evolved into that book, The Green Executive. Right, that you said was your second book. How yes. many have you written now? I've written two full-length books, um, and then three uh, dose shorts for dose sustainability, which are um, sort of meant to be snappy 90-minute reads, so they're not the same length as a full-length book, but uh, five t- uh, titles in total. Right, so your latest book is one of these... Uh, quick reads um, yes according to what you say about it on uh, YouTube it's born out of frustration tell us a bit about that yes well there's a there's a, a gap between I suppose many people's aspiration of wanting to really make a difference and the techniques they use to try and attain that so I we, we keep finding uh, you go into organizations for example and they'll have, say, well, we've set up a network of green champions and they're going to help us facilitate this change. And if you ask who are these people, they say they're volunteers. And then you find out they're usually quite junior in the organisation. And, you know, that makes me pull my hair out because large organisations have a reporting structure for a reason. They have targets and objectives embedded in into people's job descriptions or, or people's annual reviews for a reason and why you're trying to change make these fundamental changes for sustainability as a sort of bolt on voluntary thing on the side rather than integrating it into that reporting structure I'll never know so um, the way I I started musing on this uh, the, the 80-20 rule um, which is as many of your listeners will know, this idea that the, the there's quite an imbalance between input and output on many, many things, your book sales and anything else. You know, the, um, the average book sale uh, author sells about 2,500 books, but the only people who actually make money are the, the sort of J.K. Rowling's and E.L. James's of this world. Uh, so a very small number of authors are responsible for a huge percentage of the uh, of book sales, and this goes with lots of other things. So you know, if you think about your working day, um, you know, we all get frustrated that we spend half our you know huge chunks of our day deleting spam and sitting in meetings which aren't really going anywhere. And you think, well, all I did when I went in, uh, in today was ask one person the right question. Suddenly, something happened. Okay, and that's my big achievement for the day. So it's really trying to get this. Uh, tap into this, identify those sort of vital actions which will actually make a difference and clear away the sort of undergrowth of all those, of all that 
sort of bureaucracy and uh, tail chasing and all that stuff and really focus on what matters. Okay. You uh, quote a case study in the book. Uh, you talk about a construction company which agonised over how to engage its site personnel. And you agreed with them that it was a difficult problem, but also you agreed its impact was low because 90% of the key sustainability decisions were made in the design office. Yes. So, But are you saying then that it's not always necessary to engage the whole workforce, but just, just the key players? Um, what, what I would say, not, not quite... You don't have to engage at all, but if, say, 20% of your employees are, have influence over 80% of your impact, then the 80-20 rule suggests that you should spend 80% of your effort on those 20% employees. Okay, yeah. Uh, because they are the ones that are going to make a difference. Now, it's not to say um, that, you, sh- that uh, you shouldn't engage the others, but one of my frustrations is there's a, a sort of inbuilt assumption that we have to be very egalitarian and treat everybody equally and all the rest. But for something as vital as sustainability, I would rather people focus on the changes which will make a real difference. And if that's engaging those small number of people with a very large influence on sustainability, then, then that's what you should do. Right, OK. And when you engage people... Should you take how they act at home, uh, you know, recycling, switching off lights, uh, walking instead of driving and all that sort of thing, as an example? Um, no, I, it's interesting because one of my first employee engagement um, contracts, I was actually asked to do that and I refused. And uh, This yeah. brings in the topic of one of my other, because this, this idea developed into the topic of one of my other do shorts, which is Green Jiu-Jitsu, because this was a major engineering company. And frankly, I was terrified of the idea of walking in in front of all these, you know, hard-nosed engineers uh, and telling them to switch off their TVs at night. You know, it'd be very patronising. So I persuaded the client instead to let me present sustainability as an engineering problem requiring engineering solutions. And we, we, the whole the work engagement workshops, rather than me telling them anything, was all about getting them to apply their knowledge to the company's sustainability issues, and it's phenomenally successful. So I call this green jujitsu because the, the the traditional engagement technique of sort of sloganizing people, I, I like into boxing, where you're trying to pump all the other person into submission. In jujitsu, the martial arts, you see your opponent's height, strength. Uh, speed, momentum as opportunities, not as threats. So green jiu-jitsu is about seeing people's strengths as an opportunity to engage them in sustainability rather than seeing them as sort of somehow damaged and you want to, you know, you want to help, you want to fix those problems. So for engineers, you talk about engineering. A wonderful case study I saw recently in the NHS where they engaged nurses by persuading them that, say, switching off unnecessary medical equipment would allow patients to sleep better on the wards so they would recover better mm-hmm. and save energy. And it's, it's that tapping into the, the prevalent culture in the organisation uh, first, which really develops, uh, delivers results, rather than this sort of slightly wishy-washy, uh, lightweight, tree-huggy approach of trying to make people feel a little bit guilty about about what they do for a day job. That's, uh, that's a very interesting approach. 
There's a lot to do, of course, isn't there? We're all, in name at least, progressing towards a global low-carbon economy. Uh, the British government has got a target of 80% um, uh, reduction by 2050. What do you feel about our progress? Are we making progress? Are we actually going to achieve what's necessary to uh, stop dangerous climate change? Are we actually going to be able to get there? Um, we need to keep accelerating, I think, but we are accelerating. You know, if you take, for example, the UK's um, energy mix, back when I started in sustainability, we had 2% of our electricity came from renewable sources, and 90% of that 2% was hydroelectric in Scotland mm -hmm. and now it's pushing 18% and all of that is wind and solar you know they say that uh, solar capacity doubled in the UK last year not the number of installations the capacity doubled in a year yeah and that is uh, you know that is a surging technology and surging sectors a new business model yeah it's interesting you should mention that because yesterday i was at the community energy conference in manchester and uh, i hadn't realized what the potential is for localized renewables it's enormous we haven't scratched the surface yet but uh, in germany they are making very very significant advances and obviously the opportunity is there for us to do the same yeah and we have to we have to think of the way we measure these things as well because a lot of renewable energy isn't measured because it's not connected to the grid. Mm -hmm. So if you think of all those standalone uh, road signs with a solar panel on top, oh yes, none of those count <laughs> the, um, because the road sign has never been connected to the grid because it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if we didn't have the solar panel on top, of course, it would have to be connected to the grid. Yes. So, uh, you know, everything from pocket calculators to, to road signs and, and people having these, um, you know, the use, say, of uh, solar panels on, on your roof, it's only measuring that... Um, it's only measuring that electricity if it feeds into the grid. It's not measuring the stuff you use directly in your house yeah. when the sun's shining and you've got the, the radio on or the fridge on or whatever during the day. So I actually think the contribution for from renewables is much larger than than the official figures. And we have to develop, just in the same way as we have to develop new ways of using that um that power because it's intermittent etc etc yeah um we have to find new ways of of measuring it properly so we yeah. can really appreciate where we're going or uh, how well we're doing so in summary are you optimistic for the future well i think you have to be um the i don't like the doom and gloom merchants um because you know most of the the signs of is that we are moving quite swiftly now in the right direction um i don't think doom and gloom helps anybody you're certainly not going to persuade anybody who's not interested in sustainability to get interested by depressing them because we've got automatic sort of psychological shutters that come down just block all that stuff out and again that's a bit of the going back to the green jiu-jitsu thing that's part of the thinking is if you want to enthuse people about sustainability you have to work out how that how sustainability overlaps with their interests and that will be different for different types of people but there's always a way so 
you know, the, some work's been done in, um, you know, the US uh, in terms of um, presenting to climate skeptics, presenting renewables as a form of energy security mm-hmm. and cutting reliance on overseas countries and things like that. And that's a wee bit of green jiu-jitsu as well because it's, it's really thinking about what will inspire the audience uh, and tapping into it that way. Whereas the traditional green activist approach um, sort of says, well, if you're not going to sit in a, outside a TP knitting yogurt, um, then uh, then you're not taking it seriously, and I, that that's you know that's a non-starter. That's not going to get anybody anywhere. It just makes the the people who do that sort of preaching feel better. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that as well. Um, Winding this up a bit, uh, Gareth, if you were talking to somebody in education, maybe thinking about their A-levels or perhaps just starting um, university, what would you tell them about the sustainable future, about the world that they're um, on the point of joining? Um, I think there's two routes into sustainability. I think there's the route which um, I took which was to get broader non-sustainability skills, in my case engineering, and then move into sustainability. Or there's the route of starting off wanting to become a sustainability expert in inverted commas. The only problem with the, the second route is it's very crowded. Everybody wants to do it. So in some ways, you know, if you've got an interest in chemistry... Uh, I would advise people to do their chemistry uh, A-level, do their chemistry degree and then start looking at green chemistry, which is very, very important and vital for the future because those skills will be the ones which will be in most demand, not people who understand life cycle assessment. Right, okay. Well, I'm sure we could talk for hours. Thank you very much for uh, your ideas and insights, Gareth. It's and been a pleasure, Anthony. Okay. Thank you very much. And maybe we'll invite you back in the future because everything's changing. The whole world is changing. And I'm sure you'll have more to tell us uh, if we call <laughs> you back again. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for now. Cheers. That's Gareth Kane. You can find out more about him, uh, more resources, uh, introduction to his books and so on, at his website, which is terrainfirma.co.uk. That's T-E-R-R-A-I-N-F-I-R-M-A dot co dot U-K. That's it for another week. Today I'm actually presenting at the education show at the National Exhibition Centre. My topic is how do I make sense of sustainability in terms of sustainability in schools? I shall be going out and about to find other people to interview. I've got a number on my list. I'm tracking them down. You will hear them shortly. But that's for the future. For now, that's the end for this episode. Thanks once again for listening. Do get in touch at mail at anthony-day.com if you'd like to comment or suggest any ideas for future episodes. In the meantime, have a great weekend. And we'll talk, or at least I'll talk, and I hope you'll listen next week. This is Anthony Day. Bye for now.